In the last months, I've been studying the newest trends in science on how we learn and how we can translate the most current concepts of learning and practice methods into the world of sports training, especially youth sports. This article is mostly a pure transcription of the chapter Embrace Difficulties, found in the book Make It Stick, The Science of Successful Learning by Peter Brown, Henry Rodiger III, and Mark McDaniel. My only contribution here is to try and link the author's message to the world of sports training. And for that, I have adapted some of the examples brought in the book into examples we could commonly find in the sport of volleyball. Here we go. When you are training to get better at something, it is important to face some difficulties that elicit more effort and that apparently slow down learning. Spacing, interleaving, mixing up practice and others will more than compensate for their inconvenience by making the learning stronger, more precise, and more enduring. Short-term impediments that make for stronger learning have come to be called desirable difficulties, a term coined by the psychologists Elizabeth Bjork and Robert Bjork. When you consider the desirable difficulties, the question where fast increases in performance during practice rises. Do we want an athlete to quickly look better at practice? Is that athlete really learning when that happens? Well, to understand how difficulty can be desirable, it is important to briefly describe how learning occurs. Encoding. When you are practicing, the brain converts your perceptions into chemical and electrical changes that form a mental representation of the patterns you've experienced. This process of converting sensory perceptions into meaningful representations in the brain is still not perfectly understood. That process is called encoding and the new representations within the brain memory traces. Think of notes jotted or sketched on a scratch pad, our short-term memory. Much of how we run our day-to-day -day lives is guided by the ephemera that clutter our short-term memory and are, fortunately, soon forgotten. How to jigger the broken latch on the locker you used when you suited up at the gym today. Remembering to stop for an oil change after your workout. But the experiences and learning that we want to salt away for future must be stronger and more durable. Consolidation. The process of strengthening these mental representations for long-term memory is called consolidation. New learning is labile. Its meaning is not fully formed and therefore is easily altered. In consolidation, the brain reorganizes and stabilizes the memory traces. This may occur over several hours or longer 
and involves deep processing of the new material, during which scientists believe that the brain replays or rehearses the learning, giving it meaning, filling in blanking, blank spots, and making connections to past experiences and to other knowledge already stored in long-term memory. Prior knowledge is a prerequisite for making sense of new learning, and forming those connections is an important task of consolidation. Sleep seems to help memory consolidation, but in any case, consolidation and transition of learning to long-term memory storage occurs over a period of time. An apt analogy for how the brain consolidates new learning may be the experience of composing an essay. The first draft is rangy, imprecise. You discover what you want to say by trying to write it. After a couple of revisions, you have sharpened the piece and cut away some of the extraneous points. You put aside to let it ferment. When you pick up again a day or two later, what you want to say has become clearer in your mind. Perhaps you now perceive that there are three main points you are making. You connect them to examples and supporting information familiar to your audience. You rearrange and draw together elements of your argument to make it more effective and elegant. Similarly, the process of learning something often starts out feeling disorganized and unwieldy. The most important aspects are not always sailing. Consolidation helps to organize and solidify learning, and notably, so does retrieval after a lapse of some time, because the act of retrieving a memory from long-term storage can both strengthen the memory traces and at the same time make, it, make them modifiable again, enabling them, for example, to connect to more recent learning. This process is called reconsolidation. This is how retrieval practice modifies and strengthens learning. Now, suppose you are on day two of learning how to attack a volleyball. You step outside the court to attack a ball on the left side of the net, and you struggle to recall the correct sequence of your approach and compose yourself. Right step, left step, arms behind the body, right and left step quickly while throwing your arms up in the air at the same time you jump on both feet, but by focusing on the ball the coach just tossed for you to attack, you forget to send, for example, your arms behind your body. At the same time, you maybe jump only on one foot, miss the timing, and barely contact the ball with your hand. This effort to reconstruct what you learned the day before is wrecked. But in making it, critical elements of the fundamental itself become clearer and are reconsolidated for a stronger memory. If you're practicing something over and over in rapid-fire fashion, whether it's your volleyball attack or maybe the conjugation of foreign verbs, 
you are learning on short-term memory and very little mental effort is required. You show gratifying improvement rather quickly, but you haven't done much to strengthen the underlying representations of those skills. Your performance in the moment is not an indication of durable learning. On the other hand, when you let the memory recede a little, for example, by spacing or interleaving your practice, retrieval is harder. Your performance is less accomplished and you feel let down, but your learning is deeper and you will retrieve it more easily in the future. Retrieval. Learning, remembering, and forgetting work together in interesting ways. Durable, robust learning requires that we do two things. First, as we encode and consolidate new material from short-term memory into long-term memory, we must anchor it there securely. Second, we must associate the material with a diverse set of cues that will make us adapt at recalling the knowledge later. Having effective retrieval cues is an aspect of learning that often goes overlooked. The task is more than committing knowledge to memory. Being able to retrieve it when we need is just as important. The reason we don't remember how to attack a volleyball even after we've been taught how to do it is because we don't practice and apply what we've learned. Say you are in your first volleyball attack practice and your coach goes with you over all the phases of attacking a volleyball. You practice attacking and your coach says you can come back to the gym to get more reps whenever you want. You head home committed to get back to the gym to get more reps. But, you know, life is full. School demands a lot of time and you fail to practice attacking. It will soon be forgotten. And this story could end there. No learning. But then, as it happens, over the spring, you buy maybe a portable net and you want to be able to play volleyball over the summer, maybe at the beach. With your portable net up on your driveway and a friend that tosses balls for you to attack, you recall from your first attack practice, that one you did months before. You are now practicing retrieval. You find a video your coach made during that first practice with the entire sequence of attacking, for example. You take the first step, silently reciting the little memory device you were given. It is like I'm jumping to catch with both hands a ball thrown at me above my head. Retrieval again. A few attempts later, and there you are attacking volleyball, something you've wanted to do for a long time. Later that afternoon, your friend comes back and you get a few more reps in, and maybe later, again, that same night, you are doing spaced practice. Over the coming few weeks, you are surprised how many more balls you managed to attack when playing with your friends. And by early July, you have discovered that you can attack pretty much any volleyball that is set or tossed above your head. 
along the beautiful, maybe Florida West Coast. Knowledge, skills and experiences that are vivid and hold significance and those that are periodically practiced stay with us. The mental rehearsal you conduct while walking to the volleyball court or after the game on the way home is a form of spaced practice and that helps you too. Easier isn't better. Psychologists have uncovered a curious inverse relationship between the ease of retrieval practice and the power of that practice to entrench learning. The easier knowledge or a skill is for you to retrieve, the less your retrieval practice will benefit your retention of it. Conversely, the more effort you have to expand to retrieve knowledge of, of some skill, the more the practice of retrieval will entrench it. Considering the findings several studies involving sports have found in this matter, let's mentally split a group of volleyball players in two and train them on improving their attack of the same outside set or left side, but of balls that might be too far off the net, too far inside the court, or too far outside the court. All players already know how to attack volleyball, that's important. And furthermore, they already know how to attack sets that come their way like that. Say nothing changes in their regular practice schedule, but both groups agree to get extra attack practice say twice a week. Attacking a volleyball is one of the hardest skills in the sport. It takes a fraction of a second for the player to execute a complex combination of perceptual, cognitive, and motor skills. The player will read the quality of the ball that was set, height, distance from the net, speed, and relative distance to their right or left, considering the antenna. As a reference, making a mental plan to approach, jump, and contact the ball at the optimal point in time and space without mentioning the opponent block, their parameters, like defense, etc. But let's just consider the attack itself. This chain of perceptions and responses must be so deeply entrenched as to become automatic because gravity will pull the ball down before you can even begin to remember the correct sequence of the steps of a volleyball attack approach. Say one group practices their attacks in the standard and traditional way. Each player will attack, say, 30 balls, evenly divided into three sets. Each set consists of one type of set that will be attacked 10 times. For example, the first set will be 10 sets too far off the net, the second too far outside the court, and the third too far inside. For each set of 10 attacks, as the player sees more of that type, she got gratifyingly better at attacking those balls, timing her swings, etc. Learning will seem easy. The second group, though, will be given a more difficult practice regimen. 
The three types of sets will be randomly interspersed across the block of 30 sets. For each set, the player has no idea which type to expect. At the end of 30 attacks, she will be still struggling to adjust to the sets. Those players will not seem to be developing the proficiency their teammates were showing in the previous group. The interleaving and spacing of different sets made learning more arduous and fell slower. The extra practice sessions will continue, say, twice a week for six weeks. At the end, when players' attacks are assessed, the two groups will have had clearly benefited differently from the extra practice, and not in the way you expect. Those who have had practiced on the randomly interspersed sets will display markedly better attacks relative to those who have had practice on one type of set over and over. Do you doubt it? Try it. The results will be even more interesting when you consider that those uh, could be already experienced players even before the extra training. Bringing their performance to an even higher level is good evidence of a training regimen's uh, effectiveness. Here again, we see the two familiar lessons. First, that some difficulties that require more effort and slow down apparent gains, like spacing, interleaving, and mixing up practice, will feel less productive at the time, but will more than compensate for that by making the learning stronger, more precise, and more enduring. Second, that our judgments of what learning strategies work best for us are often mistaken colored by illusions of mastery. The second group of our experiment met the challenge and their performance gains became, became painfully slow, but also long-lasting. This paradox is at the heart of the concept of desirable difficulties in learning. The more effort required to retrieve, or in effect, relearn something, the better you learn it. In other words, the more you've forgotten about a topic, the more effective relearning will be in shaping your permanent knowledge.